Thank you, Cynthia. Hello, everyone. It's wonderful to see you here today. I don't often get to have a microphone. It makes it a lot easier <laughs> for people to hear you. Um, I don't know how much you know about me already, but I think I'll introduce myself a bit, because everywhere I go at the moment, the first question I get in Q&A is, well, why on earth did you go into politics? Um, so, well, it's true to say I did not harbour parliamentary ambitions from the cradle. My first love was completely and totally music. I was a junior scholar at Trinity College of Music by 14. By 17, I was completely committed. I was going to have a glittering career as an operatic mezzo. And even when I was selected, I was actually doing a defil at Somerville College in Mahler's representations of the feminine in his later works. Um, the route, my route from music to um, politics is going to have to wait for another day, mainly, I think, because it's going to require extensive psychoanalysis to establish exactly what happened. Um, but it's fair to say that politics has always been there in my family. Um, not party politics at all, but issues politics. In the year I was born, my parents were actually um, working at Baraguanath Hospital in Soweto. It's the largest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. It serves, served then exclusively the black community. Um, and pretty soon my father, who's not very diplomatic, had started speaking out against the very poor cardiac care um, that was then received by the black community. And um, before they really knew where they were, we were back on a plane to the UK. Not exactly thrown out by apartheid, but not very welcome either. Um, and somewhere along the way, um, it got to me. I don't think that you could experience the 94 elections in South Africa or visit um, Rwanda immediately after the genocide where I was working with street kids or walk through Jerusalem in the year that Yasser Arafat died without the politics starting to get to you. Um, and as a result of that, and as a result of the volunteering that I'd done with international aid organisations in a lot of post-conflict countries, I began advising the, our now International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell, and was appointed a commissioner with the Conservative Human Rights Commission to work on human rights and foreign policy. Um, but pretty soon, I was incredibly frustrated with advising. Um, the problem with advising is that you can only really leave it up to someone else's conscience. And I wanted to be able to take part in the decisions about supporting the things which I thought were working and about trying to find ways to fix the things which weren't. Um, and that's why it's been such an incredible privilege, not only to be a candidate for three and a half years and have the opportunity to raise the things which I think needed to be debated in the election campaign, but now to have the opportunity actually to represent people and hopefully to make some of those decisions to change things. Um, but it's true to say politics is not the choice if you want to be popular. Even before the expenses scandal, I think politicians ranked somewhere between career criminals and tabloid journalists. One voter pointedly told me that the reason there are so few women in politics is that it takes too long to put makeup on two faces. <laughs> it's a joke that served me well. <laughs> Um, and, you know, that attitude is not going to improve. You know, we face very difficult times, um, you know, trying to deal with the budget deficit, trying to decide where a very little money goes and who gets the priority is going to make for some very unpopular politicians. And I don't think that any of us are quite prepared um, for how difficult that is going to be. Um, but today I know is about women in science, not women in politics. Um, but the reason I started with that is because I think that Firstly, it's important to understand that my perspective in approaching energy and climate change comes from having visited villages in Bangladesh, which won't exist if we don't start addressing climate change, of having visited places in the Sahara, which are already in the grip of 
urgent need to address the climate change, which means that they can no longer farm their land, that they can no longer deal with um, the malaria, which is gripping communities and refugee camps. So I come at it from an international perspective, but I understand that all of you come at it from the perspective of needing to know where your country is going to support you in terms of science and the future. Now, I've just gone completely off piece with my speech, so let me try and get back to where I was. Um, I think there are a lot of similarities in the challenges that I've faced in the political arena and the challenges which you're going to face in sciences and which you already have faced, I'm sure. Um, it's a historically masculine profession. They both are. The majority of role models are male, mostly white and middle-aged. And even though a lot of action and words have been spoken about the need to bring in change, it seems that the places which are actually experiencing the change, where we are getting close to parity, are at school level and undergraduate level. And the higher up you go, the more uncomfortable the statistics really become. I think um, women only hold 9% of directorships in UK FTSE 100 companies which are in the SAT sector. Um, I think if we carry on at the rate of change we currently have, it's going to be 18% by 2030. Clearly, there's something that's going quite wrong there. Um, in politics, we've got the same. We've had one female prime minister. We've had two female home secretaries. Believe it or not, I am the first female member of parliament Oxfordshire has ever had. This is 2010. I mean, it is really quite shocking. Um, but I'm, the one thing which I was quite surprised to find out is that we've never had a female chief scientific advisor. And we've only at the moment got our first interim chief medical officer in Professor Sally Davis. So you are facing almost identical patterns that we are in politics. Now, I know that the gender balance is even worse, or at its worst, in engineering and technology. And these are the two areas which we need to be working on seriously if we want to have the low-carbon, high-tech future which the coalition government keeps talking about. I don't believe that we can have it if we're only taking our pool of talent from half the population. It simply makes no sense. Um, so I'm going to say that the moral imperative for getting women into, into science is definitely there, but that the measures that actually need to be taken in order to achieve this flexible working, moving to parental instead of maternal leave, um, changing the culture in which long hours rather than output are seen as the key indicator of productivity, none of which actually relates to family life in any positive way. That at a time when we're facing recession, when um, businesses are struggling and industry is struggling just to stay working, we cannot start messing around with the way they do business because it will affect the bottom line. But actually, research shows that this isn't the case. I think it was a 2007 McKinsey & Co. report into large organisations in Europe, Asia and America, which showed that there is a positive correlation between diversity at board level and the bottom line. And not only that, there's a positive correlation between diversity at the board level and the well-being and culture within the company. This means that it not only affects women, these policies also positively affect men because we forget it sometimes, but men have families too and they would like to get back to their families. We need to stop this gender issue just being about women. We need to stop the discussion about improving the workplace just being about women because in the end, we're all the winners. And I'll read you what the McKinsey report found. It said, flexible working in the workplace found a positive relation to productivity, 
commitment to the organisation, better retention of staff, improved morale, reduced absenteeism and an improved image of the company. Now all of those things sound like good business to me and that is what we need to be focused on. I'm very pleased that Theresa May, who's our Minister for Women and Equalities as well as being our Home Secretary, is completely convinced of this. She's campaigned on it for years. She was very involved in taking the Equalities Bill through and ensuring that it worked with business rather than against it. But also that we started breaking down some of the myths that surround good working practice and productivity. But if the government is to commit to science and women in science, as I, I do believe that it will, there are a few things that need to be addressed, I think. And this is my personal view. I'm not stating government policy at this point. And that is the relationship between science, scientists, politicians and the public. I was at a meeting um, to introduce and brief new MPs um, by the Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology last week. Um, Post was set up to try and um, get better relationships between the MPs, the scientific community and government departments and they've had great success on a lot of levels. But one of the things which came up in the discussion was whether the climate gate emails, as they're called, had materially damaged public trust in science evidence. And this was in a room of politicians, perhaps the most distrusted people in British life at the moment. Um, and of course the discussion then swung over to take in David Nutt and the consequences of that for the relationship between scientists and politicians. Uh, David Willits was there and I was pleased to hear that he has actually put into the Ministerial Code a reference to a set of principles which will establish a stable basis for ministers to actually take scientific advice. So that ensures some stability for the scientific community as they advise politicians. But we still have a problem in the relationship not only between politicians and the public but also scientists and the public. I think there's a lot can be done first thing I would say is that we do need to have a more media-savvy scientific community. Um, we need to have more media-savvy politi political community as well. But um, if you look at your average newspaper, the stories that you'll read are that broccoli is causing cancer today, or that blueberries will stop you having wrinkles. And this is not the standard of discussion that I want to see about science in the media. Um, we need to be better at selling science to the mainstream public, about showing them exactly what this means for our future. Because the reality is, science will affect our futures in energy and climate change, in transport, in security, in the way that we deal with global poverty, in the way that communities interact with other communities, in the way that we do business. Science is at the cusp of development in all of these areas, but I would bet you that your average person walking along outside has never thought about it like that. And they certainly won't be in favour of investment in science, especially pure science, at a time when cuts are going to have to come in the public services. And that is something that both the politicians are going to have to deal with and the scientific community, because it's not going to work if only one of us start doing the salesman's role. It's got to be between us. We have to ensure that the public understand this is the way forward. In Oxford West and Abingdon, of course, we have the most unbelievable scientific community. We have some of the best set researchers, institutions and businesses in the country, some international standing. And I see it very much as part of my role to make sure that I'm engaging as much as possible with those communities to understand the concerns, to understand the worries about what the government is saying, but also so that I can be part of the salesman pitch, as it were. Um, I'm not a scientist. I come from a medical family, but I'm a musicologist. It teaches you some level of research discipline, but 
I stand in the same position as a number of MPs, needing to represent communities, which I am not part of myself, and needing to trust them that they will brief me in a way which is constructive, that they will work with me and meet me halfway in developing a relationship which means that when the decisions are made, and there are some difficult decisions coming up, we have the Brown um, inquiry into um, university funding which will establish whether we maintain the Haldane principle, whether we keep the dual investment um, model, which I think both of which I think are very positive and we should be hanging on to. I'm pleased that David Willits has expressed his support for it. But there are other areas which I think we need to be concerned about at the moment. Firstly, we need to have a stable climate for research and investment. I think one of the key things which prevents women from getting into science and staying in science is job insecurity, is short-term funding, interrupted research, needing to travel across the country to take up a post, or perhaps out of the country to take up a post. One of the most worrying things for me is that of my contemporaries at Oxford and Cambridge who are now doing postdocs, without exception, they're all doing it in other countries. And two of them now have young families, and they're in American universities, and I would bet anything that the fact that they have a possibility of tenure there will keep them in America. We cannot afford to be losing top-quality researchers in this way because we don't have a climate which encourages competitive and um, attractive packages for top-level research in this country. But we also need to look at not just top-level research, but technical um, support. Um, I think David Willits visited um, the Large Hadron Collider in CERN um, before the election and he said he met some amazing UK particle physicists at the top of their field and was really impressed. But he noticed that amongst the technicians, the UK was severely underrepresented. I'm very encouraged by the plans for technical academies, by the plans for apprenticeships which aren't just in name, which are actually linked to A-level standards, linked to employers. This means that hopefully we will not only have the top layer um, focused on, but also all of the support that we need to actually not only have the ideas and the innovation in this country, but also to transfer those ideas into market-ready products which people can actually sell and which become part of the economy. But this is another area of danger which I foresee, which is that there is going to be, in a time of tight funds, a focus on impact-led science. Now, impact-led science is very difficult to quantify, and I know that it's been looked at by the Lord's um, Select Committee. But we have to ensure that while we do understand that science should have an impact, it's pretty much why most of you got into it, and I do want to see that impact in places like Bangladesh and, um, and North Africa, um, at the same time, we mustn't neglect pure science, because the pure science of today is the applied science of tomorrow. And without ensuring that we have a long-term strategy, we are only going to damage the science community for the long term. And if there is anything which and this is a slightly particular point, frustrated me about the last government, it was that a lot of initiatives seemed to be responsive to the climate of the week or the year. And I don't want to see that continued, especially in relation to something as valuable and important for the future of this country as um, the science community. So, in closing, I was asked to give my words of encouragement um, to future women leaders, perhaps in politics, perhaps in science, who might be here today. Um, and so my words would be, we can't do it without you. You're not going to create the gender balance, you are the gender balance. 
And you need to be the people who innovate, the people who agitate, the people who do not accept the status quo and do not say there can be no change. If I was one of those people, I would not have stayed for three and a half years fighting in a seat that everybody told me I couldn't win. I hope that each and every one of you will look at the future of this country and see that you not only have a stake in it for the future of yourself and your own family, but you also have a responsibility to commit to a vision of a low-carbon, high-tech future in which we can address some of the most horrifying, damaging futures that we see, not just in this country, but in some of the countries which are least equipped to deal with the impact of that. I hope that you will join me. I hope that you will join me in standing up and saying, I will be counted, I will be part of this change, and I will not allow a gender imbalance to stop me from standing up and speaking out and establishing the change that this country and this planet, I hate that word, so desperately, desperately needs. Thank you very much.